Welcome to another episode of Defend and Confirm. Yes, we're back. We're back. And we took a brief break from this series yeah. on contemporary critical theory. We had a guest in town. Mike McKinley. And uh, now we're jumping right back into it. Right back into the critique. Yeah. So we did a couple episodes building up, getting background and history and explaining mm. terms. Now we're critiquing yeah. the major tenets. The four tenets. Of critical theory. Yeah. Which are? Well, we've already critiqued the epistemology of critical theory because it's a worldview. So they have to ask the question, well, how do you know that? Right. Right. We critique that. Uh, then we critique the hegemony. Honey, can you can you trim the hegemony? I've been, I just, sorry, I never got a chance to get that one in. Uh, <laughs> which is basically the power structure, right? right. Uh, it's, it's, it's everything that allows this group of people, all the oppressors, to be in control. And, and, and uh, we just said, yeah, it's not really a biblical way to think about things. Right. And uh, today we are going to critique the social binary we are and define that for us yeah so uh in its most simple terms the social binary is uh in this worldview you look at every every interaction through the lens of oppressed and oppressor every person fits into the category of oppressed and oppressor that's right it's a way of explaining how society functions that's right and contemporary critical theory doesn't just suggest that this is somehow sometimes how we should view society. Yeah, because we would say that. We would say that scripture's clear. Our own experience tells us that there are oppressors in the world and that there are oppressed in the world. That's right. What critical theory says is that every interaction has to be viewed through this lens. Yes. Yeah. So let's start by unpacking the history of this concept. Do it. Uh, we're going we're gonna to make this brief. If you don't like history, don't watch you falling asleep here. Yeah. Uh, but it's important to know where it comes from. Yeah, that's right. So sociologists uh, in, in the classical study of society would often talk about society sort of like an organism. Okay. They would view it as this creature, this thing that was composed of a bunch of different parts. And those parts would be different members and classes and segments of society. Yeah. That would then work together, mm -hmm. just like an organism has different organs that kind of function separately but work together. For the good of the whole. For the good of the whole. Yeah. And so through this view of society, it really emphasized cooperation. Mm -hmm. And so you can you could think of this as the cooperative view of how society works. Sure. And we're not saying that this is the only view that has ever existed of society, but it, particularly in the West, this has been the predominant classical view. That's right. Okay. And so this view emphasized shared cultural values and, and social bonds and consensus as sort of the fabric that allowed society to function. Yeah. Now, this view has some issues. Sure. Uh, it's not a perfect explanation of how every society functions. It doesn't take sin into account That's sufficiently, right. so on and so forth. It, it yeah. tended to lean towards naturalistic, uh, maybe deistic understandings of a society mm. Uh, really sort of tried to remove God and concepts like sin from the equation. Yeah. Overly optimistic, I would say, in many I, ways. I agree. Yeah. But it does hit on some pretty major truths, things right. that we would agree on. And one of those is that people who believe the same moral values have a shared understanding of private property, the rule of law, these sort of foundational assumptions about the world. Yeah. Well, they tend to flourish when they gather together in a society. That's right. They're all on the same page. And yeah. that makes cooperation in this cooperation view something that functions. And it makes it very easy. That's right. Yeah. So enter Karl Marx. Okay. Again with Karl Marx? Again with this guy. Is this guy the boogeyman? He, Are we obsessed with Karl Marx? <laughs> 
he was an incredibly influential thinker. He was. And so when you start to look at he really is. any philosophy in, in modernity, yeah, and you pull back the layers of the onion, he just pops up. Yeah. Because he had such an extensive influence on the way we think. And, yeah. and unfortunately, too much influence. Sure. And what's, sorry, I just have to throw this in there Please just do. because any chance I can to steal glory from Karl Marx, I will. Go for it. Uh, so much of what is credited to him actually was the brainchild of Frederick Ingalls, but that's for another episode. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so Marx, to Marx slash Ingalls, go. Marx totally rejected this view of society. Okay. He said, nope, that's not how it works. He was a real negative Nancy. He really was. Yeah. Uh, so he argued for something called the conflict view of society. So wow. we have the cooperative view on the one hand. He yeah. said, nope, society is fundamentally an interaction of groups and societies at war with one another. It's a zero-sum game. There's a limited pool of resources. It's nature is red in tooth and claw. Yep. Go. So every interaction okay. that my group has with a different group, yeah. or me as an individual has with you as an individual, yeah. is a struggle for these limited resources. Mm -hmm. And the wealthy and the poor are generally the two sides of this coin that we see shake out through this conflict. That was the lens through which Marx interpreted all this conflict. He interpreted these conflicts along economic lines. Primarily, class okay. and economics. Right. And so he would say that as these conflicts go on, you end up with the wealthy oppressing the poor, yeah. and the, the gap between the two does nothing but grow. Right. So here's an example. Okay. Consider uh, a construction worker. Construction worker has a boss, a foreman, who hires him, to nail some stuff together. Okay. Um, never done construction. So I assume that, that's... I think that's all they do. That's probably okay. right. So the cooperation view would say, look, here are two people, two parts of society who are coming together of their free will and yeah. choosing to enter into this economic relationship that benefits both of them mutually. The foreman assumes risk, has capital to invest, has knowledge and expertise, the worker has labor to give, so on and so forth. It's right. a great relationship. The laborer is selling, essentially, his labor right. to the boss, gotcha. who then takes that labor, and in exchange for giving the laborer a job, yeah. uh, uses it to gain a profit. Yeah. And and so we would tend to think of this as sort of a capitalistic way of, of viewing things. Sure. Uh, however, this everybody wins mutual agreement idea, Marx yeah. said, no, that's yeah. not how it works. This is a conflict. Here what we have in this relationship is two different entities striving like like parasites attacking mm. one another to extract as much material wealth and resources from one another as is possible. Right. It's a war. Yeah. It's and, it's purely self-interest. Whereas capitalists would look at that and say there is certainly self-interest involved. For sure. Marx says no, it's only self-interest. Right. And in and in this relationship, the boss is the one who ultimately exploits the laborer by drawing more from him than he gets. And so then you end up with this continuing sure. stretch between the wealthy and the poor, the oppressor yeah. and the oppressee, and that gap as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Did you say oppressee? Did I say oppressed, the oppressed? They're, no, I like this. You like Let's it? go with oppressee okay. from here on out. So as that, as that divide grows, yeah. you end up with the tensions that ultimately boil over into revolution, okay. which is what Marx would say. And he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong. Yeah. Now, it's true, as we've said, that this does describe some of the attitudes of people in a free market. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, we would say that, that the cooperative view is right, that you need a shared moral fabric mm -hmm. in a society to prevent everyone from devolving into these self-interested wars and conflicts. Yeah. yeah. But he wasn't right 
that this categorizes all economic interactions. Or even the vast majority or, or of Or even the majority sure. of them. Yeah, and, and so he's wrong first by presuming that every economic interaction benefits only the ruling class. That's right. It's just not true. Scripture no. assumes, for example, that this sort of inter- economic interaction between laborer and, and, and boss or the yeah. person hiring the day worker is morally just. Yeah. It's, so look at Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. Yeah. So this is saying don't hold back the wages for a laborer. Yeah, which is oppression. Which is oppression, which is unjust. Give them the wages that they worked for and earned. Which is just. Which is just. Yeah. So you see an economic assumption that this exchange, this free will exchange, is perfectly just. Sure. So uh, in real life, Marx has been proven wrong by something far more powerful, history. Okay. (laughs) So look at any society... Yeah. Since Marx's time that has yeah. embraced free market principles, has yeah. generally free trade, even yeah. with some government involvement. Sure. You're going to see that countries like that have yeah. more stability, yeah. more prosperity, more a higher GDP, higher quality of life, yeah. not just for the elite at the top. That's right. But for every strata of society. You can even almost move the, what's the word I'm looking for? fingers <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can you can I mean, if it's on a spectrum yeah every time you move slightly left towards mark you see all those good things diminishing mark and, <laughs> the gospel <laughs> marks and marks. as you move towards the right towards more freedom yes you see all the good things increasing right, right? and, and it, you can do that you can just look throughout the last hundred years and see and, it and not to go off on a tangent on economics sure. because i'm we're not advocating some particular economic policy here we're just talking yeah, generally right. in principles yeah uh, you can look at the communist, or sorry, socialist <laughs> countries in Northern Europe. Yeah. Uh, that everybody holds up as as the such Nordic countries. Great examples yeah. of how the, the the Nordic countries are using socialism, and yet they have these wonderful quality of life, yeah. this great GDP, all this right. prosperity. But if you look closely, they have some profoundly capitalistic tendencies that actually uh, surpass what we do in America. Yeah, and they even have that now because the more socialist that they were back in the 70s, their economy was just completely right. collapsing. And so a lot of people came in and fired everyone and was like, all right, we got we got to fix this. Amazing. Yeah, so they're even more capitalist today because of how much socialism failed them a few decades ago. Having said that... We're on a bit of a rabbit trail here. Let's let's yeah. keep going. So the, the whole point here is Marx was wrong. And this is important. The reason, <laughs> that is important. The reason we've gone down this rabbit trail yeah. is because we want to make it really clear that demanding that we look at economic relationships as always between oppressor and the oppressed yeah. is just false. It's just not how reality works. Now, because history proved Marx to be wrong, even basically within his own lifetime, uh, something else came along something else came calling well if you've listened to our episode on the history of critical theory you'll know what comes next yeah neo-marxism neo-marxism contemporary critical theory uh through gramsci through um horkheimer and adorno these are all guys who looked at what marx had said recognized that none of it was happening the way it was supposed to yeah and said hey we got to tweak things yeah and so this is where they sort of flipped Marx on his head and said, let's focus less on the means of production and on material resources. Let's focus on culture and ideology and power structures. That's right. And here's, this is exactly where you get contemporary critical theories fixation on the same sort of social binary. Yes. So good example here. 
Um, to give you a quote from a, a contemporary critical theorist, uh, D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, yeah. uh, says all major social group categories, such as gender, are organized into binary either or identities. For example, men, women. These identities depend upon their dynamic relationship with one another, wherein each identity is defined by its opposite. Not only are these groups constructed as opposites, but they are also ranked into a hierarchy. Now, it seems like there she's attacking the binary. Yes, and insisting that that's how we look at it in society. Okay. So she's saying that this binary exists uh, because the elite, those yeah. in power, yeah. are creating it. Okay. But she insists that it's there and that it's the only right way to look at society. Okay. So, and, and there you see the conflict theory of Marx translated yeah. into something that looks a whole lot more like contemporary critical theory. Yeah. Same fundamentals. Economics, now it's gender. Right. It's not all class. Yeah. It's gender, sexual orientation, uh, ableism, religion. Right. Skin color is a primary one. Sure. And, and when we see this. Primary? Color? Was that a... Primary colors? Anyways. Oh, wow. Go ahead. You're, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel on jokes here. <laughs> So basically, contemporary critical theory has taken conflict theory and just expanded this group identity yeah. past class. That's right. Um, we see this come out in contemporary critical theory with... Um, are you about to make a come out joke? No. Okay, that was just me and that my... That was just yeah, you. Okay. Uh, we see it in identity politics. Yeah. So we're not really getting into the fruits of this stuff quite yet. We're yeah. not going to critique heavily critique identity politics. Uh, but it's important to understand that that identity politics is the primary manifestation of this social binary tenant in today's discourse. That's right. And we're going to talk about that more in, when we critique uh, critical theory by looking at the bad fruit that it produces. That's right. Okay. So, uh, in other words, contemporary critical theorists have kept Marx's view that society can only be understood as a constant conflict between the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, but following critical theory and the way it flipped Marxism and became neo-Marxism, uh, it's less about material goods and resources, uh, and it's more about the hegemony. So yeah. Marx's idea that society was like a game of hungry, hungry hippos. Yeah. And there's only so many... Did you play that as a kid? Yeah, of course. Okay. There's yeah. only so many little white balls and whoever gets the most wins. Yeah. Well, it, it turns out that's not how it works. Okay. So this was more about oppression being experienced simply by living in a culture where your identity, your group is not the majority or is, is not normative. Yeah. So whether that means you're a homosexual and you live in a culture where it's predominantly heterosexual right. or your skin color is dark and you live in a culture that's primarily a lighter skin color, sure. you are oppressed. It's, it's the normative way of viewing reality. Yeah. So what's wrong with this? Well, what's wrong lot. with the social binary? <laughs> yeah, we've talked a little bit about this. So like Marx... It's simply false to insist that all relationships in a society have to be understood through this lens. Okay. You got four ways. You're going to tell us four different ways that this is false. Yeah, this is the first one. Okay. Oh, what's the first one? Number one, it's false that all oh, okay. relationships okay. have to be viewed through this social binary. Well, uh, uh, I mean, that's kind of not really the strongest argument. You're just saying, I'm just saying it's not true. Well, here's why I'm saying it. Okay. Uh, because we want to, this is where you got to have nuance. So like you've already said, like I've already repeated, we would agree that oppression is a real thing. Right. We would agree that people sometimes oppress other people. And so we need to have this lens as a tool for trying to understand social interactions. Okay. But we would also say there are plenty of instances where mm. just because 
you are not in the dominant social group or you are not the majority or you are a minority does not mean you are oppressed. That's correct. There are many people within evangelicalism who will say contemporary critical theory is a useful tool because it gives us things like oppressor, oppress, oppress, oppressee. There we go again. There it is. Uh, it gives us this lens, yeah. which is a biblical, these are biblical categories. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in James. It's useful because we can analyze society with this stuff. And I want to point out that as soon as you dial it back and say, well, not every relationship has to be viewed through this lens. Well, now it's no longer critical theory. That's right. You don't have to have critical theory to recognize the categories of oppressed and oppressor. Right. You can get that from the Bible. And when you adopt critical theory, you're you're not adopting the Bible because the Bible doesn't say every interaction is characterized right. like that. It says that it's possible That's right. to have those interactions. And the distinct defining characteristic of critical theory is this idea that these conflicts are descriptive of all society. Yeah, that's and right. so as soon as you back off from that and say, yeah. well, I don't want to go quite that far. Well, now you're just using basic biblical reasoning and yeah. critical theory has nothing to do with it. It's possible to be black in America homosexual in America, a Muslim in America, and not be in any way oppressed. That's right. Yeah. And, and what we'll see, okay, so number two, many of these claims of systemic oppression against particular groups are just simply false. Okay. Um, and I don't want to say every single one of them. Right. I want to say many of them. And the reason for that is if you adopt this lens that says all relationships have to be viewed this way, okay. well, guess what you find when you look at society? What? you find oppression behind every bush and every right. tree and in every shadow. And you start to just engage in this circular reasoning. That's uh, right. It's kind of like, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, that's right. Same concept. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to get into unpacking every particular claim of oppression and showing why right. the evidence points in the opposite direction. Let me give you a real simple one. Okay. The myth of the gender wage gap. So women on average earn... 75 cents for every dollar that the man earns yes in the workplace in america there's a way that you can calculate that and it's true right but as soon as you look at what the data actually is to generate that calculation you realize it's not making an apples to apples comparison right if you look at the types of jobs men take they're generally more dangerous they're generally more uncomfortable uh, they generally involve a lot more physical manual labor or men tend to go into fields that are particularly high skill and high paying, like yeah. engineering. Yeah. Those are all choices. Women generally choose not to do those things. Right. And so when you look at the type of work specifically, yeah. when men and women do the same type of work, yeah. they get paid the same. That's right. And there's other factors, women taking more time off from maternity leave That's right. uh, or, or even choosing to exit the workforce. There's a bunch of different factors there, but basically the gender wage gap is... It's a myth. It's a myth. And the reason that that myth is so pervasive is because those who hold to it, particularly feminists who are influenced by contemporary critical theory deny that men and women are fundamentally different and might, based on those differences, choose different types of work. That's right. That men would tend to go into STEM fields. Women would tend to go into more ca caregiving, caregiving fields. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So just a simple example of the kind of thing that we're saying, this is just fundamentally false. That okay. every type of interaction, every, every person with any type of social group that is a minority is experiencing oppression. There's Even a, though people who are minorities do experience oppression? Absolutely. Yeah. We want to affirm that oppression is real yeah. and minority groups are often victims of oppression. Yeah. But not every claim of oppression is true just because someone's yelling it loudly. That's correct. So next, 
Here's my other concern with this stuff. Number three. Number three. For the note takers. This narrative, and really it's a narrative. It's a story that we tell to explain a society. Everyone's telling a narrative. This narrative, contrary to what it might sound like, that it's trying to heal divisions between oppressor and uh, the oppressed, is actually driving division. Yeah, I mean, the ultimate goal is revolution. Yeah, it puts people in a mindset of us versus them. It tells people in these special social groups that they are victims and that someone is committing moral crimes against them. And it tells the people in the group that is the oppressor, whether these are real categories or not, that they are guilty of of moral wrongdoing against all these other groups. Yeah, we don't have that as a point in here, but I feel like I, I want to stop and hang out on that for a second. Um, it is a sin to tell someone that they are guilty of oppression if they are not guilty of of oppression. It's bearing false witness. Bearing false witness. And when you read some really cool places, like in the book of Leviticus, for example, uh, if you tried to bring a charge that is punishable by capital punishment in the Old Testament against someone and you bear false witness against them in order to do that, the Bible actually says, well, then we're going to stone you. Whatever the punishment was, you get that. Yeah. If you try to get this guy stoned and we see that you're lying, we're going to stone you, right? So the Lord takes it. And and when the Lord says that, by the way, he says, and so you will purge this evil from among you. So the Lord is very serious about not bringing false charges against people. And you see that all throughout scripture. That's why you have to have two or three witnesses and, and church discipline. It can't just be, you know, some elders alone in a back room somewhere. The whole church has to testify that this person is unrepentant. Because to say that someone is guilty of a sin like this and not be guilty is a sin itself. That's right. Yeah. And when you push a little harder on what is often meant in contemporary critical theory by oppression, you are an oppressor. Mm -hmm. The way they define that is so slippery because it's not something you're consciously doing. Necessarily. It may not be. Yeah, yeah, it may not be something you're consciously doing. You're just participating in a system of hegemonic oppression. Uh, and and that's that's fundamentally not what the word oppression means, which yeah. we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's not oppression to participate in a system of social norms and values uh, that are just happen to be dominant within a society. Sure, correct. And which brings me to my next point. Here we go, point four. Some of what's called oppression is actually a good thing. Okay. Wait, is this point four? I think it doesn't on, matter. I think we're on four. Okay, okay four. We can't count. No. So sound- numbers are a tool of the, <laughs> of the patriarchy. Sorry, go ahead. You cis hetero patriarchal Christian and your numbers. Come on. All right, here we go. So some of what's called oppression is actually a good thing. Yeah. So for example, I want to put abortion doctors in jail. Yeah. I think that should be illegal. I yeah. I think abortion should be illegal too. Yeah. That's I right. want to tell women you're not allowed to kill your unborn children. Yeah. Critical theory, uh, particularly uh, critical feminism, would say that's immoral, that's oppression. Right. And I would say, okay, uh, you can't oppress evil. Right. When you oppress evil, that's not oppression. That is good. That's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Similarly, uh, you may say that attitudes within a culture about homosexuality being immoral are a form of oppression. Yeah. And I would say, once again, oppressing evil isn't oppression. Yeah. Homosexuality is immoral. There's a natural response of, it's what we might call the ick factor. When we think about homosexuality, that is normal and is healthy and is not something that constitutes oppression. 
No, not at all. And if so, then you have to do what many of them at least are honest enough to do and say that God is an oppressor. That's right. But as Christians, this is this is our issue, right? Part of the reason why we're recording this podcast is we're not concerned about people. We're not concerned about the pagans who would call God an oppressor. That makes right. sense. That's what pagans do. We're concerned when people are trying to have this sort of syncretism between yes. evangelical Christianity, which believes everything that the Bible says, and this critical theory worldview. And God clearly says this is evil and wrong, and you're trying to find a way to work your way around that? That's right. No. All right, last point here, number five. So this is interesting. Okay. Might have to think carefully about this one. So this social binary, we could say, manifests itself as identity politics in, in contemporary critical theory. It's actually asking us to think like chauvinistic white supremacists. Okay, do tell, do elaborate. Okay, so let's let's use the white supremacist for a sen- for okay. example. Okay. White supremacists would say things like racial identity is fundamental to your personal identity. That's right. They would say things like everything has to be looked at through the lens of race. So if I'm if I'm a you know white supremacist, my Aryan identity, everything about me is processed through that lens. Okay. Yes. It overflows into every aspect of your life. That's right. They would say things like using logic and reason are inherently white. Wait, who's they? The, the white supremacists. Okay, yeah, yeah. They would say that's a that's a tool of of the white brain, sure, which is advanced sure. beyond yeah. the dark skin colored brain. Yeah, you see it in their religion, yeah, so on and right. so forth. Okay. And amazingly, these are exactly the same kinds of things that contemporary race theory, critical race theory, yeah. says about race. Okay, give me an example. So the contemporary critical theorist who works in the field of race would say racial identity is fundamental to your personal mm. identity. Everything has to be looked at through the lens of race. Logic and reason as tools for discerning truth are just tools of the cis, hetero, patriarchal, Christian white man. Right. Which is what the white supremacist has been claiming all along. He just means something much more disparaging by that. Yeah. Uh, they, what's really fascinating. So I spent a little bit of time, uh, up at Harvard, uh, in a workshop f- at their divinity school. Yeah. And it was the first time, this was a few years ago. It was the first time that I actually saw, uh, intentional segregation along racial lines mm. propped up as a virtue. Right. So there was a particular breakout in this workshop at Harvard divinity school that was for people of color only so that they could have a safe space to discuss issues that were related to people of color only, and whites were not allowed. Yeah, I think the Gospel Coalition had something similar to that at one of their women's conferences. Yes, this is called segregation. Yeah. This is exactly what white supremacy would like to see happen in all sorts of, I don't know, do they have conferences? Do white supremacists have... Oh, how could they not? Yeah, do they have breakout groups? Certainly. Yeah. So, so this segregation is a product of viewing race as fundamental to one's identity. Yeah. As as so, it's interesting because at the same time, critical theory will argue, well, race is just a social construct. Yeah. And yet, rather than sort of recognizing that and breaking down these racial barriers because they're just things that that we've sort of... Ignore it and let it go away. Yeah, let it go away. It's, well, we're going to cling to that and make it so fundamental to our identity that we're not even going to interact on certain subjects because we've given up the idea that we can communicate uh, and that we can have a shared language and shared experience. Yeah. Uh, Which, once again, is what white supremacists have been saying since there's been white supremacists. You know, G.K. Beale, he has that excellent book um, on idolatry where he basically, for like 
9,000 pages, uh, expands on this idea of we become what we worship. Mm. And I think that's what you see here, right? If, if you worship at the altar of identity politics, then you will become what you have begun to worship. That's right. And uh, in Ephesians, we see that God has broken down the walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and that principle by applies way of implication, yeah. by way of implication to every sort of identity and, and, and social group that you could be aligned with. Yeah. And that's really the beauty of the gospel is that it gathers people together from every race and culture and gender and background around something that can unify us despite those differences. But if we cling to those differences and make them central and refuse to unify because we want to hold up those divisions, that's just anti-gospel. Yeah. And we're not saying, for example, if you're a black man in America, that being black in America isn't a part of your identity. That's right. We're just saying the fruit of, for example, in critical race theory, that becomes the the whole of your identity. Do you see a pattern here? No. Okay. <laughs> well, just every time we note something that's wrong with critical theory, we're yeah. saying this isn't. In, there's some shred of truth here that's yeah. almost right, but then they take it to this extreme that makes it utterly false. Yeah, which is the which is the case with all false teaching. That's right. right. You're going to take something that has a, a grain of truth, and then you're going to air it out into something that you're is gonna, completely you're false. You're going to run to some terrible extreme. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's what we see over and over here. Yeah. So next episode. We're going to be critiquing, what's the last one? The, Social justice activism. That's right. This is now, the last of the common denominators between all this critical theory stuff. Yeah, that's right. Now, we have uh, already done a series on social justice. So if you want, go back and watch that. We'll probably repost it this week so yeah. that people can catch up. And and that's where we kind of elaborate on what like a biblical understanding of justice is. And we did that in like four episodes. Yeah. So we're going to try to basically not do that again. That's right. We're just going to basically try to explain, okay, we think that there is a way in which you can talk about social justice that we think is good, right, true, and biblical, but there's a way in which you can use that language and we think is actually anti-gospel. That's right. And then once we're done with that, we'll get into critiquing the fruits of contemporary critical theory. Yes. All right. So signing off. This is Sean. This is Russell. This is Goose. You're supposed to say this is Maverick. I've never watched Top Gun. But yet you know... (laughs) (laughs) Signing off. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.